0: Good morning, everyone. The Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 27. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 27. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did me not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who bears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it this is
1: the word of the Lord thanks Tash and thank you to Rafa for the prayers a little bit earlier on and for our music team for leading us in the worship of our Lord in song uh, as we come to this passage let's, let's approach in prayer so will you join me our Heavenly Father, we are very aware of the fact that we approach you not on the basis of our own merits, but on the basis of your unfailing love and unfailing mercy in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's the one who has opened the way. Uh, there is no other way. And so we approach on the merits of His blood, on the merits of His righteousness. Father, will you, will you receive us in his name, in the power of his spirit? Will you speak to us this morning? There's nothing we need more than to hear the word of our Father in heaven who loves us. Will you speak to us through your word in the power of your spirit? You have a, a, a sobering word, a serious word for us this morning. Lord, we cannot hear it unless you give us ears to hear And so please will you be at work by your spirit this morning in each one of us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Gospel. If I say the word gospel, what words or ideas come into your mind? Maybe God's kindness. Maybe the good news of my salvation, God's mercy, God's free gift of his Son, God's grace, any and all of the above. I imagine very few of us came up with the word obedience. That's not a word we normally associate with good news. For many of us, when we first encounter the gospel... In fact, I think for most of us, when we first encounter the gospel, the thing we really struggle with is the idea of grace. We are so conditioned by performance from the moment we open our eyes that we find it impossible to believe that a relationship with God is free. Surely we have to earn it like we have to earn everything else in life. No. In comes the gospel. No, it's by grace. It's free. We struggle with that idea. If and when we finally get it, which takes an act of God, of course. If and when we finally get it, when grace finally lands in our hearts, then a whole other struggle begins. What are we supposed to do with all the commands and instructions in the Bible? If our relationship with God is based on the free gift of His Son that I could never, ever possibly earn, what must I do with the commandments? What must I make of all the imperatives, all the things that God tells me to do? How do I reconcile all of that with grace? So I think that's the journey for most of us. We start out thinking... I relate to God through obedience. In comes the gospel. No. It's by grace. We're backpedaling now. Okay, okay, it's by grace. But what do I do with obedience? What do I do with all the commandments, the imperatives? The thus says the Lord. And so that's the journey. That's the struggle for many, if not most of us, if not all of us. What about you? You personally, what do you think of obedience? And why do we find it so hard to relate obedience to grace? Why did so few of us think of obedience when I said the word gospel? Is it because the gospel has nothing to do with obedience? Hopefully this passage is going to answer some of our questions. We're going to look at it through the lens of these Three things. The teaching itself, then the problem with the teaching, and then the warning. The teaching, the problem, and the warning. Just those three things. First of all, the teaching. The teaching in this passage is crystal clear. Jesus could not be any clearer. I'm sure you will agree. It's clear as daylight what what he's saying. What is that message? What is he saying? Well, the heart of the message is built around two confessions and two houses. Both confessions sound the same. Both houses look the same. But because the two confessions and the two houses are not the same, they have two very different destinations. Two very different destinies. Two very different outcomes. The two houses look the same on the outside. But one builder was wise and the other builder was a fool. One built on the rock, the other built on sand. So on that day, on the day of testing, on the day of the great storm, the day of destiny, even though the two houses look exactly the same, only one will stand. The other collapses with a mighty fall. On that day, verse 21, on that day, on judgment day, there will be two confessions. They will sound exactly the same. Lord, Lord, two people will be confessing the very same thing, yet only one will be received with, well done, my good and faithful servant. The other will be flat out rejected with, I never knew you. Away from me, you worker of lawlessness. Everyone will say, Lord, Lord, on that day. But only some will enter the kingdom of heaven. The same confession. The very same confession. But two very different destinies. What exactly is the difference between these two confessions? Because did you notice that this confession is completely orthodox? Jesus is Lord. The theology is spot on. The confession lines up with the teaching of the church, the orthodox church, across the ages, across space and time. Orthodoxy everywhere confesses Jesus is Lord. This confessor is well taught. This confessor has done explore. This confessor knows the truth. His confession is also passionate. It's not just Lord, it's Lord, Lord. There's deep emotion in this confession. This person not only knew the truth, this person is passionate about the truth. He sang all the songs with great emotion. The confession is not only true and passionate, the confession is also courageous. This is a public confession. This person isn't afraid to own Jesus as their Lord in the marketplace. Not only is the confession true, passionate, and courageous, it's also powerful. This person, verse 22, prophesied, cast out demons, did mighty works in the name of Jesus. He a person who confesses the truth with passion, courage, and power. But it's still not enough. The response is still away from me, you worker of lawlessness. On that day, you can bow the knee and confess the truth with the same passion, courage, and power that you always have and still be rejected. That's scary. What could possibly be missing? What did the others have that this confessor didn't? What made the difference? What else could it possibly take to enter the kingdom of heaven? In one word, obedience. Or as one pastor put it, truth, passion, courage, and power in what we say can be nothing more than camouflage for disobedience in what we do because doing makes the difference doing makes the difference now i want you to see that that's not my opinion because who cares about my opinion look at the scripture look at the passage let's look at it together doing holds this passage together It holds it in a unity. Look at verse 21. The one who does the will of my Father. The one who does the will of my Father. Verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. Verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. So doing or not doing makes the difference. You have to do the will of the Father. Verse 21. Which is another way of saying you have to obey the words of the Son. Verse 26. The will of the Father is expressed in the words of the Son and it must be done. It must be obeyed. It's not enough to speak like the confessor. It's not enough to hear like the foolish builder. Speaking is not enough. Hearing is not enough. We must do. We must obey it's not enough to wear the Jesus free t-shirt or to post a verse on your status. The question is, does your life match your lip? It's not enough to listen to hours and hours of Christian content every week. The question is, does your life look any different to that of your neighbor, your colleague, your non-Christian family members? Is there a discernible difference? Does what you hear and what you say translate into a meaningful difference in your life? Is there any difference in your doing? Now even as I say those words, they immediately lead us into an awkward place. They immediately lead us into the problem. There was a hymn writer, a Scotsman by the name of James Proctor. He lived in the 1800s. We still sing that hymn today because it celebrates grace. It's such a wonderful celebration of grace and a wonderful expression of our fight against the performance impulse that lives in all of us. This impulse to perform our way into God's presence. This hymn stands as a monument against all of that. Let me just read you a few verses. Nothing, either great or small, nothing sinner, no, Jesus did it, did it all, long, long ago. It is finished, yes, indeed, finished, every jot, sinner, this is all you need, tell me, is it not? When he, from his lofty throne, stooped to do and die, everything was fully done, hearkened to his cry. Weary, working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing. All was done long, long ago. Till to Jesus' work you cling by a simple faith. Doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. Cast your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone. Gloriously complete. We would sing that, wouldn't we? I mean, we would sing that wholeheartedly, and rightly so. But now the problem is obvious. James Proctor says, lay your deadly doing down. We say, Amen. But the Lord Jesus himself says, doing makes the difference. Doing is the difference between well done and away from me. Doing is the difference between the house that stands and the house that falls. Let's press a little bit deeper into this problem. You have heard it preached from this pulpit for 30 years. The pulpit itself has moved, but you're with me. You've, preached, you've heard it preached for 30 years that grace is the opposite of performance, that you cannot perform your way into the kingdom. The Apostle Paul's writings are full of the same idea that we are made right with God by faith and not by works of the law. So which is it? Is there a clash in the Bible between Jesus and his Apostle? Did the Apostle go rogue and start contradicting his Master? How do we hold grace and obedience together? Are we supposed to do Or are we supposed to lay our deadly doing down? I'm going to let a wise old pastor give us the answer. And I I quote, It is true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience. But it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. But it is equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. Any other view of grace cheapens grace and turns it into something unrecognizable. Cheap grace preaches forgiveness without repentance. Church membership without church discipline. Discipleship without obedience. In other words, you are not saved by obedience. You are saved for obedience. You are not saved by doing. You are saved for doing. Works without faith are dead and deadly. But faith without works is equally dead and deadly. The Apostle James makes that very argument forcefully. A living faith in Jesus will produce good works. It will. If it doesn't, the faith is dead. The Apostle Paul, the great champion of justification by faith alone, by faith and not by works, he makes exactly the same argument. He commends the Thessalonian church in his greeting. He commends them for what? For work produced by faith. I thank God for your work produced by faith. For your labor produced by love. You see, they're not at odds with each other. These things must just be in their right place. The horse must come in front of the cart. In in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, please turn there because it's so important that we see this in the Scriptures. So turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 8. What you're going to see is that these ideas... Not only hold together, they flow into each other. And Paul has them adjacent to each other in successive verses. So you'll see what I mean when I read it. You're with me. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Can that be any clearer? How are we saved? It is by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of Of God. It is not from works. So that no one can boast. Crystal clear. Emphatic. Then listen to what he says next. Very next verse. For we are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship. Having been created in Christ Jesus. For good works. That God prepared beforehand so that we may do them. Do you see? There it is. It doesn't get any clearer than this. Verse 9. Salvation is not from works. Verse 10. Salvation is for works. If we get those prepositions wrong, we destroy the gospel. Salvation is not... Let me get it right... From works, salvation is for works. Like James, the Apostle Paul is saying to us that obedience flows from faith. That faith expresses itself in obedience. How do you express faith? It's not just a feeling you have. Faith needs to be expressed. It's a muscle that needs to be exercised. How do you exercise that muscle? In obedience. That's why in his letter to the Romans, Paul begins and ends with the very same phrase. It's it's such a curious little phrase, and, and we can miss it if we're not reading carefully. But he starts the letter, he finishes the letter, encouraging the Roman believers in the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. That's the phrase he uses, he opens and closes with. Faith and obedience draw life from each other. Obedience without faith is dead. Faith without obedience is dead. But when they are together, the obedience of faith, they draw life from each other. And we are called to the obedience of faith. There's no other obedience that's true to the gospel. We are called to the obedience of faith. Now when Paul says these things, he's only following his master. You see, he's not contradicting Jesus. He's following Jesus. He's submitting to Jesus. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is concluding his great sermon on the mount with a call to obedience. That's the last word in the sermon. Do you remember the first word in the sermon? We started this series three years ago. I'm asking a lot of you. Do you remember the first word? You probably might remember it from just from your Bible reading. How does the sermon start? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, blessed are those who recognize they have nothing to give to the Lord. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Grace is the headline and the title of the whole sermon. Grace is the flag that flies above the whole kingdom. Obedience flows from grace. Obedience draws life from grace. From what God has done for us. We respond in thankful obedience. Apart from grace, obedience is nothing but dead works and deadly works. And we must lay that deadly doing down. But if we are trusting in Christ, if we are trusting in His righteousness, it's then that obedience comes to life. You see, God, in all of his goodness, in all of his grace, in all of his mercy to us, what God has done for us in Christ is the fertile soil out of which our obedience grows and produces fruit. It's all him. But we've planted our trees somewhere else if there's no fruit. Do you see? If we are trusting in Christ and in his righteousness, obedience comes to life. The call to obedience comes in the context of relationship with the king. It's that kind of obedience we're talking about. This is not dead letter obedience. I'll come back to that in a moment. This is obedience in the context of a relationship. What do we mean by that? Well, let's see it in our passage first. What is Jesus' great charge against, we're back in Matthew by the way, Matthew chapter 7. What is his great charge against those who falsely confessed his name? Who said, Lord, Lord, but he said, away from me, you workers of lawlessness. What is his charge against them? What does he hold against them? Do you see it there? His charge is this. I never knew you. Verse 23. I never knew you. That's why they never obeyed him. They never obeyed him because they never knew him. If you know Jesus, if you know his love for you, his inexhaustible love for you, his sacrificial love for you, if you trust him as your savior king, as a friend to sinners like you and me, then you will obey him. It's the only response if you know him. If you truly know Him as He truly is, there is no other response. Obedience is what will happen if you are in that kind of relationship with the Lord. If you see Him as He truly is. I try to explain it to my kids like this. You know, explaining something to a child, those of you who are teachers or parents or grandparents, you'll know this. Aunts and uncles will know this. You try and explain something to a child, it sharpens your mind. You have to know what you're talking about. You have to understand what you're talking about. So that's why I'm sharing this with you. I try and say to my kids, the, the longer and better you know someone, the more it's going to influence you. Right? You walk with someone for a, for a road, for a journey, the journey of life. The longer you walk with them, the more it's going to influence you. That's why you have to choose your friends carefully. They will influence who you are. They will change who you become. And my kids can see this because they recognize how they start to talk like their friends. And think like their friends. And share the same worldview. View the world in the same way and value the same things. Now that is not only true if you're a teenager. That is true for life. That's true of us. All of us. How much more so when your closest friend in life Is the son of God. The king of the kingdom. The longer you walk with him. The more you will trust him. The more you trust him. The more you will begin to want what he wants. You'll see the goodness of it. You'll desire it. In your own heart. That's what the scriptures mean when they say in the new covenant. The law is written inside of us. We actually desire from the pits of our hearts. We desire what God desires. We know Him to be a loving Heavenly Father. We know He always wants the best. There is no better possible world than the world He desires. And so we begin to desire with Him. That's what happens when you walk with Jesus. Dead letter obedience is just moral conformity to a bunch of rules written on a tablet of stone. We do it for social status. Or or, or to try and manipulate God. But the obedience of faith, that is the response of love to our king who loved us first. It flows from grace. It draws life from grace. His goodness to us. By the way, none of this was missed by James Proctor back in the 1800s. Listen to verse 4 of his hymn again. Till to Jesus' work you cling, by a simple faith, doing is a deadly thing, doing ends in death. You can say exactly the same thing the other way around. Doing is a deadly thing, until to Jesus' work you cling. And once you cling to him and all that he's done, Your doing comes alive. Or in the words of another famous hymn, Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. If I could sing, I would break out into song. (laughs) Nobody wants that. So back to our problem. How do we hold grace and obedience together? Well, hopefully by now you see, there is no problem. The problem is an illusion. As long as we understand that the obedience Jesus is calling for is the obedience of faith. It's an obedience that flows from his love for us. It's an obedience that flows from grace and grows out of the fertile soil of his goodness to us. And it grows in trust. It's a relational obedience. That's the teaching and the problem. Finally, we come to the warning. And we have to come to the warning. Because when you read the passage that Tasha read for us, there's simply no denying that the tone of those words is one of warning. We are not true to the passage If we miss the tone or ignore the tone. As he closes his famous sermon, Jesus looks to the future. He looks to the future of his disciples. He looks forward to that day. Verse 22. On that day, the day he's referring to is the day of judgment. The end of history. The day when all the books are going to be opened. And every human being, including every human being in this room, starting with the one who's speaking... Every human being will have to give an account. Jesus finishes his sermon with a warning. He says that day is coming. Judgment is coming. If we're honest, we don't like the way he's ended his sermon. We really think he could have done better. We don't like fear as a motivation. I mean, it's such a negative emotion. We prefer positive messages of affirmation. Build us up. Encourage us. Surely, Jesus, you wouldn't, you would want to finish on a high note, a rousing note, a kind of brave heart speech. Something uplifting, not this fear mongering. I mean, is Jesus trying to scare us into the kingdom? We all saw the images of the floods in KZN. And how those homes were just washed away. They impressed into our memories. Now imagine with me, you are sleeping in bed in KZN. And a police officer rushes into your bedroom and warns you, listen, the, the river's burst its banks. You have to get out and you have to get out now. Are you going to sit up in bed and go, you know, hang on. Um it seems to me that you are trying to scare me into obedience and I don't respond well to threats. You know, couldn't you just be a little bit more encouraging, just a little bit more affirming, a positive message? That would be crazy. We would be so thankful for that warning. Now that warning is an act of love. In, in, the, in the face of real danger, it's the only act of love. In the face of real danger, the only way to love someone is to warn them. Again, let's hear from a wise old pastor. Jesus' teaching has important things, important things to say about race relations, social justice, personal integrity. But it cannot fairly be reduced to the temporal concerns of my lifetime here. There is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned. Jesus says you gain that heaven. You shun that hell by the obedience of faith. This whole sermon, this warning at the end poses the most important question any of us are ever going to face without a doubt. Here's the question. Where are you building your house? Put another way, which Jesus are you confessing? And to those who consider themselves disciples of Jesus here this morning, please don't switch off at this point. Please don't assume that this question is for someone else because you answered it years ago. We can't afford to assume. Because not everyone who says Lord, Lord on that day will enter. It is not enough to believe. It is not enough to feel. It's not enough to speak. It's not enough to hear. He has to know you. And you have to know Him. Your house of faith can have a new coat of paint, wonderful furnishings, beautiful spacious rooms, high ceilings. It can be in a lovely neighborhood with a whole row of other similarly beautiful little houses alongside each other. It can have all that and still be built on a fault line or on a sinkhole. You can have the model superstructure but no foundation. Your faith can look just like genuine faith, just like the real thing, and still be rejected as a fake. That's the warning of this passage. How? How can it be rejected? Because your faith is ultimately not in the real Jesus. Your faith is in Jesus as Savior, but not as King. You will trust Him to deal with the inconvenience of hell, So long as he doesn't create other inconveniences in the process. The kind of inconveniences that come with obedience. All of us have a very real choice to make in the face of this passage. Either put your trust in the real Christ or carry on pretending. It's a choice with infinitely high stakes. How will you know which choice you've made? One way to be sure is the obedience of faith. Because living faith in the living King Jesus will produce living obedience in your life. The call is to trust and obey because there's no other way. Have you answered that call? Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we... We pray for the gift of real faith. We want to be a people who do the will of our Father, a people who obey the words of their King. We want to respond to the gift of grace, the gift of new life, the gift of faith. We want to respond to it all with obedience. And we ask that your grace would change us from the inside out, from from the deepest parts of our being. Change us there, Lord, and move us to obey. Change us into new creatures, creatures of loving obedience. Lord, on our own, we're either going to fall into the trap of dead works or dead faith. We know this. We long for a living faith in the living Lord Jesus that produces living works. Help us, Lord. Help us. Have mercy on us. We know you are calling us to the good life. Help us to trust and
0: obey. Amen.